everyone, and welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, January 12th, 2024. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, Hunter Biden drama in the House. Republicans considering ousting another speaker. The U.S. goes on the attack against the Houthis. And with the Iowa caucus coming up on Monday, CBN News congressional correspondent Matt Galka will join the show to talk about his time on the ground in the Hawkeye State last week. All that's coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. But just a reminder, everybody, tell a friend or a family member about this fine podcast. This is the best weekly recap of everything that's happened in Washington, DC. I'm gonna give you the information and you decide what to do with it. If you know somebody who wants their news that way, Tell them that we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts if that's how you listen to us. That always helps the podcast grow, and the feedback is something that I could certainly use. So uh, please do that if you get the chance. All right, everybody, with that out of the way, let's debrief for this week. Hunter Biden contempt. The president's son showed up for his contempt hearing on the Hill this week, and upon his arrival... The festivities devolved into chaos on the House Oversight Committee. CBN's Hillary Powell has the details. You're here for a political stunt. This is just a PR stunt to you. This is just a game. Sitting among the crowd, Hunter Biden's surprise appearance caused chaos Wednesday, just as House Republicans began the process of holding him in criminal contempt of Congress for not complying with the subpoena for a closed-door deposition last month. Republican Representative Nancy Mace insisted Hunter Biden be arrested and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia called him out as he left during her remarks. Excuse me, Hunter. Apparently you're afraid of my words. What a coward. Democrat lawmakers argue Biden should be allowed to speak publicly. It just so happens the witness is here. Then the only folks that are afraid to hear from the witness with the American people watching are my friends on the other side of the aisle. Republican Chairman James Comer noted committee rules, including a three-day notice for witnesses, prevented Biden from testifying, even though he was there. After leaving, his attorney made a brief statement outside the hearing room. The Republican chairs today then are commandeering an unprecedented resolution to hold someone in contempt who has offered to publicly answer all their proper questions. The question there is what are they afraid of? Meanwhile, as the House Judiciary Committee held a separate hearing on the contempt resolution, one Democratic member called out hypocrisy, saying the chairman himself has ignored past subpoenas. Is this hearing a joke? This is a committee that now cares about subpoena compliance? When you failed to honor your own subpoena, CBN News contributor Nathan Gonzalez says the person with the least say in the matter spoke the loudest by just being present. It's hard for Republicans to make the case that Hunter Biden is avoiding uh, questioning when he shows up at a committee hearing and sits in the front row. But I think to the average American, they don't understand why Republicans aren't willing to interview him publicly. Following his brief appearance, the only remarks Hunter Biden made to reporters came when they asked why he had his father on speakerphone several times during his business meetings. His response, quote, if he called you, you would answer the phone. Congress budget deals. House Republicans continue to have intra-party squabbles. This week, conservative Republicans refusing House Speaker Mike Johnson to allow normal business to be conducted on the floor by voting against a rules procedure 
that is, that is normally routine, which allows bills to be brought to the floor and debated. This happened on a couple of occasions last year when Speaker Kevin McCarthy was in charge. Now, as Speaker Johnson attempts to bring up compromise spending bill legislation that some on the far right say is a defeat to the Democrats, conservatives are refusing to allow some unrelated bills to come to the floor as protest. Speaker Johnson earlier this week reportedly agreed to top-line spending limits on the different appropriations bills that are coming up. Congress has two budget deadlines to avoid a government shutdown, the first on January 19th, which is next week, the second on Groundhog Day, February 2nd. Kind of ironic, huh? Groundhog Day seems we've been repeating some of these patterns over the course of the last year. However, that deal that Speaker Johnson agreed to with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer enraged conservatives on the Freedom Caucus. And as of Thursday night, some of those conservatives are now saying the agreement is dead. Speaker Johnson noncommittal either way on Thursday afternoon when asked about that. There has been some reporting of whispers also inside the GOP caucus that if Speaker Johnson does what his predecessor did, make any kind of spending deal with Democrats in order to avoid a government shutdown, that he could be vacated as Speaker too. Marjorie Taylor Greene said as much on Thursday, and Republican Congressman Tim, Tim Burchett echoed those thoughts. If Speaker Johnson doesn't deliver on the conservative credentials that he promised us, then and I suspect we will be looking for a new speaker. I, that's that's always an option, but but that was a rule that was put in place many years ago. It's been voted on and it's been approved by this Congress. So, yeah, that is an option. If we don't if we don't like our boss, um, or we don't like the person that's in charge, we have the ability to remove them. However, Republican Matt Gates, who's the one who led the charge to oust McCarthy last year, he indicated this week that he would not be in favor of that right now. He says he's worried if the Republicans go down that road again, the next time a speaker is named, it could be a liberal Democrat who could assume the gavel, given the difficulty with which the conference finally found a speaker in Mike Johnson a few months ago. Border battle. Negotiations in the Senate are now centering on the issue of parole with regard to security at the southern border. Parole is an executive power that would temporarily allow some migrants to come into the country that Republicans would like to keep out. GOP senators are seeking a cap on how many migrants can be granted parole and allowed to remain in the country. There is also an effort by negotiators to explore how to get asylum seekers work permits more quickly, an issue that would please Democratic mayors in big cities who are dealing with an influx of migrants, some of them flown or bust into their cities from border states like Texas. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has been a major player in the Senate negotiations. Meanwhile, at the same time, in the House, Republicans are engaged in efforts to try to impeach him leading to an unusual situation where you have Senate Republicans trying to work with a cabinet official that their colleagues in the House are trying to kick out. It's hard to see how a Senate deal in which Mayorkas was one of the main negotiators will be accepted by enough House Republicans to get it to pass. Meanwhile, as these Senate negotiations are going on with Mayorkas in the mix, as I mentioned, on Wednesday, House Republicans began their impeachment proceedings, not, not actually an impeachment hearing or anything like that, but their first hearing, a markup into a bill that could 
launch impeachment inquiries into Mayorkas. Republican Congressman Mark Green in this hearing on Wednesday declared that they have no choice but to move forward with these impeachment proceedings. Our evidence makes it clear. Secretary Mayorkas is the architect of the devastation that we have witnessed for nearly three years. The findings of our investigation, available to the public at homeland.house.gov, coupled with the Secretary's refusal to change course on the reckless decisions facilitating this crisis, have left us with no reasonable alternative than to pursue the possibility of impeachment. Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson says Republicans are looking to impeach Mayorkas for the wrong reasons. Republicans disagree with the Biden administration's border and immigration policies. They are angry that this administration won't take babies from their moms or put kids in cages like the last administration. You cannot impeach a cabinet secretary because you don't like the president's policies. Let me say that again. You cannot impeach a cabinet secretary because you don't like a president's policies. That's not what impeachment's for. That's not what the Constitution says. House Republicans believe Mayorkas is allowing far too many migrants to remain in the country with no oversight into their whereabouts after they are released. And they're concerned the open border is also bringing into the country too many illicit drugs like fentanyl. There was a Senate Banking Committee hearing that delved into that topic specifically this week as well. But you have this dichotomy where you have Republicans in the Senate who are negotiating with the White House and specifically Mayorkas on a border deal. And then in the House, you have Republicans who are looking, who have officially begun the process of starting impeachment proceedings against Mayorkas. Mayorkas has signaled that he would like to testify before an open hearing next week with regard to these impeachment proceedings. And we'll see whether or not something like that gets added to the calendar early next week. Attacking Houthis after weeks of attacks by Houthi rebels backed by Iran in Yemen, U.S. and British military carried out airstrikes against Houthi-controlled territories in Yemen on Thursday. An escalation, the U.S. says, was forced by continued attacks against commercial ships in the Red Sea by the Houthis. In a statement, President Biden said he will, quote, not hesitate to direct further measures to protect our people and the free flow of international commerce as necessary. Some in Congress, Republicans included, had been calling for the White House to be more proactive in preventing the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, which has altered and affected businesses and commerce from accessing the heavily used waterway. There is concern, however, that this is the next phase of a growing war in the Middle East that began with Hamas's brutal attacks in Israel on October 7th and resulted in Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza. Uh, that has, according to uh, NGOs, uh, independent watchers, has left tens of thousands dead and led to a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Austin Health Secret. Those attacks came as the Pentagon is dealing with a controversy that could undermine Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's position there. Austin and the Biden administration are both under fire for a shocking decision by Austin and the DOD to withhold his hospitalization for cancer treatment, as well as an adverse reaction to that treatment from the White House and the public for days last week. Austin was reportedly in the ICU for four days, and the president and his staff were apparently unaware of it. Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who represents Fort Drum and who she says has soldiers currently deployed in the Middle East, 
says Austin's actions, as well as those of his deputies, are completely unacceptable. While those brave service members were under attack by Iranian-backed terrorists, the Secretary of Defense was in the ICU, the Deputy Secretary of Defense was on vacation, and Joe Biden and the White House were completely unaware. In the chain of command, the Secretary of Defense serves as the connection through which the President commands and controls our armed forces. There will be a congressional investigation already launched by Hask Chairman Mike Rogers into this dangerous dereliction of duty, and there must be full accountability beginning, I believe, with the immediate resignation of Secretary Austin and anyone who lied for him. The Biden administration has said they will not seek Austin's resignation over this. Regarding the secretary's health, Austin has been diagnosed with prostate cancer. His prognosis is reportedly excellent and he is expected to recover fully, but we have not heard from Defense Secretary Austin about this since this all went down last week. Trump immunity hearing. After the Supreme Court decided not to agree to fast-track special counsel Jack Smith's request to hear Donald Trump's claims of immunity in trying to overturn the 2020 election results, a three-judge federal appeals panel heard the case on Tuesday. At the heart of the issue is whether or not a president, either while in office or after he's left office, can they be prosecuted for any actions that he or she may have taken in an official capacity while executing his duties as president? During the hearing, one of the judges, Judge Pan, asked a series of hypothetical questions to Trump lawyer John Sauer, and here's an extended clip of that interaction. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is, no. is My answer is qualified, yes. There is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. In these exceptional cases, as the OLC memo itself points out from the Department of Justice, you'd expect a speedy impeachment and conviction. But what the founders were much more worried about than using criminal prosecution to discipline presidents was what uh, James Madison calls in Federalist Number 47, the, you know, the, the newfangled and artificial treasons. They were much more concerned about the abuse of the criminal process for political purposes purposes to disable the presidency from factions and political opponents. And of course, that's exactly what we see in this case. I've, I've asked you a, a series of hypotheticals about criminal actions that could be taken by a president and could be considered official acts. And I've asked you, would such a president be subject to criminal prosecution if he's not impeached or convicted? And your answer, your yes or no answer is no. I, I believe I said qualified yes if he's impeached or convicted first. Uh, we my my question was, okay, so he's not impeached or conviction, been convicted. Let's put that aside. You're saying a president could sell pardons, could sell military secrets, could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a, a political rival. Sale of military secrets strikes me as something that might not be held to be an official act. The sale of pardons is something that's come up historically okay. and was not prosecuted. But your brief so, says that communicating with an executive branch agency is an official act. And communicating with a foreign government is an official act. That's what presidents do. I wanted you to hear the whole part, the the, the whole uh, interaction there, because uh, some important legal distinctions and some back and forth there uh, were being argued. And I don't like kind of cutting that down and only giving you a part of it. The judges appeared to be skeptical of the claims made by the president. Trump himself was in attendance. And after the hearing, the president said that presidents must be able to do their jobs without fear of being prosecuted by a political opponent or the Justice Department of a future administration for political reasons. A president has to have immunity. 
And the other thing is I did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. He also said if he were to lose, it would be a slippery slope for his predecessors. President Obama with the drone strikes, which were very bad, uh, they were mistakes, terrible mistakes. And you can't put a, uh, you really can't put a president in that position. So. And he also said it would be a disaster for America. And I think they feel this is the way they're gonna try and win. And that's not the way it goes. That'll be bedlam in the country. It's a very bad thing. It's a very bad precedent. As we said, it's the opening of a Pandora's box. At a town hall after the hearing, uh, Trump went on to explain what he meant by bedlam, essentially saying that what you have in the country right now under President Biden is bedlam. It's unclear when the judges will rule on this case and when the Supreme Court will eventually take up this case after that ruling is made. 2024 latest, Chris Christie announced that he was leaving the race this week, winnowing the field even further ahead of Monday's Iowa caucus. From the moment I got into the race, the decision that I made was really simple. I would rather lose by telling the truth than lie in order to win. And I feel no differently today because this is a fight for the soul of our party and the soul of our country. In Iowa this week, CBN congressional correspondent Matt Galka got a sense of whether the marriage between Donald Trump and the evangelicals in that state is as strong as it has been in the past. We will pray to God for our strength and for our liberty. We will pray for God and we will pray with God. More than 50% of Iowa evangelicals support Donald Trump. At almost double the next closest candidate, the group is seen as the foundation for what some believe will be an easy win come caucus time. Other candidates might be saying at this point, don't believe the polls in Iowa, but the packed parking lots at his rallies and Trump supporters say otherwise. Speaking on statistics, everybody loves him. You believe the polling? I believe the people I talk to. I mean, I can't hardly find anybody that doesn't like him. People that don't like him either aren't active or you weren't going to change their minds anyway, but it's not very many. Donald Trump is my guy. He has world support. He has uh, a mission that needs to be completed. He has faith in what he's doing. Trump boasts a number of pastor endorsements across the state. Gates of hell will not prevail against him. Including pastor and Iowa state legislator Brad Sherman, who prayed over the candidate at a December rally. You know, I'm running to Christians all the time, say, how can you support President Trump? He's an immoral man, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I always want to ask, oh, yeah, yeah, who is that one candidate that's perfect? I forgot. What's his name? Oh, yeah, there isn't one. I just hear these people that have this idea about the perfect candidate and they don't cut anybody any slack. Trump's rivals are now attacking his record on pro-life issues. Do you think Donald Trump is not pro-life? Of course not. I mean, when, when you're saying that pro-life protections are a terrible thing by definition, you are not pro-life. God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God gave us Trump. A video shared on social media and played at some of his Iowa rallies titled God Made Trump has been rejected by some in the Iowa evangelical community. He is definitely not the Messiah of, uh, of people for Iowa. While Fort Des Moines Church of Christ pastor Mike Damastis calls Trump the most pro-life president in America's history, he adds the video is disturbing to him and other evangelicals. It's got this messianic own to it. And that's that's not how we view Trump. Uh, and I have every bit of respect for our former president. I do. I genuinely do. But when you're when you're positing yourself in a messianic way, 
let's maybe a little bit more humility, please. Do enough voters share the same concerns to make a difference? That should be decided during the caucus vote on Monday. And for more on what was happening on the ground in Iowa over the last week or so is CBN News congressional correspondent Matt Galka joining us here on the DC Debrief to give us a lay of the land on what's been going on, politically speaking, in the Hawkeye State. Matt, thanks for coming back on the DC Debrief. How are you? Doing great. Great to be here as always. I, I actually really enjoy coming on and, and giving a little uh, giving a little more life, a little more letting the stories breathe a little more. I love it. Yeah, because certainly the stories you're putting together, it really gives us a good indication of where the Iowa voters are. I know you spoke to a lot of people. Uh, you you basically you visited pretty much every campaign while, while you were out there for different events and whatnot. And there was a lot going on in the week that you were out there. Kind of a surprising move this week, I think, uh, amongst the presidential candidates. Chris Christie dropping out of the race uh, just ahead of Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis's uh, debate and the Trump town hall on Wednesday night announcing in New Hampshire uh, that he was uh, going to step down, saying that he had uh, no path to the nomination. That's been pretty evident, I think, uh, for a number of months now. But uh, were you surprised at the timing of Chris Christie announcing the end of his campaign? And what do you think it means for for Nikki Haley, for Donald Trump, for Ron DeSantis? You know, I'm not sure I'm, I was that surprised. Um, I, I think once it kind of became clear that there was momentum for other candidates in New Hampshire. Uh, I, and I think some of the some of the latest polling shows Nikki Haley in New Hampshire uh, within single digits of Donald Trump. I think once that became clear, there was pressure on Chris Christie to drop out. Now, he dropped out and, and he had that hot mic uh, moment yeah. where he... It, I don't know if disparage is the right word, but he said Nikki Haley's going to get smoked. And then it cut <laughs> off when he said DeSantis was called him petrified, uh, you know, when he was on the phone and DeSantis was petrified. I, so he didn't endorse anybody. But the thought process is that his supporters would migrate to Nikki Haley um, because she's considered, I guess, the, the, the most moderate uh, Republican left in the race. And he mm -hmm. was obviously running a very anti-Trump uh, candidacy and campaign now. So I wasn't that surprised. I think, uh, you know, one of the biggest Nikki Haley supporters out there is New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu. And mm -hmm. he, he was all but saying Chris Christie drop out of the race. He was saying he was hearing he was going to, he said, but, but, you know, you have anti-Trump Republicans and, and people who are ready to move on, uh, that probably supported Chris Christie's message, but also are in the context of, we know you're not going to win, Chris. So yeah. if you really are anti-Trump and you really want to try to make that a reality, you'll drop out and you'll support somebody who could possibly win. So I, I wasn't that surprised. And now it, it does remain to be seen if it'll be impactful. Uh, I, I Because I, I firmly believe that his campaign, and I think other Republicans believe that his campaign wasn't even aimed at the Republican majority base, it was aimed at independents or Democrats who might not want to vote for Biden. And those people don't really matter in the primary. So, you know, you talk about the long game, it might matter come the general election. We'll see, we'll mm -hmm. see how everything shakes out. But in the short term, I, I, I'm, I'm just not sure. Uh, 
it, and as I actually, I, one Republican strategist I talked to last night said, Chris Christie is one of the most unpopular people in the Republican Party. So I, you know, I'm not exactly sure how that, it, you know, it'll impact the caucus or any of the upcoming mm-hmm. primaries. But I think, as, as as a couple of people on Twitter pointed out, he got more coverage last night of him dropping out than he did the rest of his entire campaign. I mean, he got he got more traction then. I think we'll, I don't think he's going away. I, I do think he'll continue to try and push anti-Trump Republicans to an anti-Trump or, or an alternative Trump can, uh, candidate. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think his impact is still going to be out there. So I, I, I don't know. Probably if if you're if you don't want Trump to be the nominee, probably the right time for Christie to do it. If you want Trump to be the nominee, you probably don't care <laughs> that yeah, he dropped saw, out. And I saw someone say that. Uh, it- Christie dropping out before the Iowa caucus in Hampshire primary was a nightmare scenario for DeSantis. And we'll see if that comes to pass. But I think you're right. Most people believe that Christie supporters will migrate over to Nikki Haley. But the Trump campaign obviously throwing some cold water on that in a memo that they released. And so uh, we'll we'll see what happens uh, as as it's not going to really affect Iowa all that much, but certainly an eye on New Hampshire and seeing how those numbers move over the next couple of weeks uh, before the New Hampshire primary gets underway. I know you spoke to Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, you talked to Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, all these different folks. And I guess the first thing I kind of want to get a sense from you is based on who you talk to and because you got a good cross section, I think, of the folks who are there, what is your sense in terms of of how this thing is is looking right now, every poll has Trump up by thirty or more points, and the caucus is always a little bit weird. Do you get the sense from your time there that that Trump is as popular that it's going to be any as easy a road for him as it seems to be, at least based based on the polling? Well, the, it's um, Iowa is 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 funny. Uh, and I, I say that as a, I, this, I was an Iowa rookie. That was the first time I, I had ever been there. Um, it really enjoyed the state, to be honest. We, we were in Des Moines, but I was funny because, uh, it, they go first, the caucus happens first and the caucus is usually the pace setter for momentum for a lot of campaigns, mm-hmm. except when you look at some of the results, I mean, in 2016, Senator Ted Cruz won the caucus. He didn't go on to be president. Um, people have had Rick Santorum, I believe, finish second, um, in a different presidential cycle. People have had success there that don't go on to win. Uh, you know, so it's, it's a funny place to me as a, just a political junkie where it goes first and it's supposed to set the pace, except the pace isn't always set. Sometimes the results are outliers. So we're, we're here, here we are in 2024. It, depending on which poll, but we'll do the average poll. Trump is up by 30 points, uh, is getting 50, and DeSantis and Haley are neck and neck for second, somewhere around 20. Um, now, on the ground, every candidate, uh, and then you have Ramaswamy, who's polling at, what, I don't know, eight or nine or, or wherever he is in, in fourth. Uh, every single candidate, though, is saying, hmm, it's going to be a surprise. There's going to be a surprise. There's going to be a surprise. The only candidate not saying that is Donald Trump. Uh, so let's. I, I guess we'll start with some of the folks uh, on the ground, some of the voters. You look at the Trump rallies, and they still have these long lines. So there's no doubt that there is big support for the former president still in Iowa. That's 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 not in doubt. Um, how much of it is whittled away by the other candidates? Well, you look at what some of the folks who are supporting the other people are saying, and here's what they like. You look at Vivek Ramaswamy, 
he's done what's called the full Grassley, a nod yeah. to Chuck Grassley, went to every county. He did that twice. He's gone to <laughs> every county twice. So he's done the double Grassley. Ron DeSantis has done the full Grassley, and I think Nikki Haley is five counties short uh, of doing the full Grassley. And to Iowa voters, that really matters. And what they're saying is Trump parachutes in, he does some rallies some places, and then he leaves. He comes in, does some rallies some other places, and then he leaves. So for the people not in the Trump camp, that really, really, really matters to them. So is Trump up by 30 points? Is that going to be the, the, the victory margin? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I'd be surprised if it was that much of a drubbing uh, because beyond the candidates, because I guess we could say the candidates, they have to say they're in the mix, right? They have to, yeah. they have to be optimistic. But, you know, I, I, I've talked, I talked to some evangelical faith leaders too, who might not, you know, a number of them are supporting Trump, but there's a, a talk to some that are not. And they again said, well, we really appreciate the people who are on the ground here doing the work at all times, the people who are sticking around, that that means a lot to Iowa voters. So it'll be, I, I think the result will be interesting. I, I I guess I did sort of go into it believing the polls, like, oh, Trump has this big lead and we went to the rallies and you see the big crowds and like, obviously the support is still there, but I've heard enough from enough people that are saying he's just not here enough. Trump's just not here enough. And these other candidates are, we appreciate that, to mm. think, well, Trump might win Iowa, probably will win Iowa, I guess. But is it going to be a slam dunk home run, like far and away? Mm, you could convince me that it's not at this point. Very interesting. I know Nikki Haley this week said that uh, she really expects, she was asked essentially, what is going to be a strong finish for you? And she essentially said, well, we got to kind of see how it looks to really determine <laughs> if it's a strong finish. So not nobody wants to set expectations and, and put numbers on it. Say, uh, if I get within 10% or if I get within 15%, that, that's a win. But I think the, the issue that some have said regarding Trump is the former president has raised expectations on his own. He has essentially been saying, I'm going to dominate Iowa. Look at the polls. Look how high, how high up I am in the polls. And that's oftentimes something that politicians want to avoid. Politicians oftentimes want to try to tamp down on expectations because should Nikki Haley, who by all accounts has been surging, especially in New Hampshire, which is of course the first primary and coming up in just a few weeks after Iowa, she could use Iowa as a springboard to New Hampshire and that could really increase her numbers there. And so the question then becomes, how much of that 30 points, if that's baked into the cake here, so to speak, how much of that, if Nikki Haley or, you know, let's not discount Ron DeSantis from cutting into that could be used as a springboard to New Hampshire. So I think it's I think the what did you hear about about Nikki Haley while you were there? Well, I, I think certainly Haley has momentum. I, I, I did find this interesting. I, she she said a remark um, not too long ago. When she was in New Hampshire, of course, she was trying to play to the New Hampshire voters. And she said, New Hampshire usually corrects what Iowa gets wrong or, or something to that effect. I will say the people of Iowa did not like. Yeah, that. DeSantis hit her on that. DeSantis was was quick to pick up on that. Yeah, he 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 that he has been hammering her on that um, at, at every event I've seen su uh, since she said it. And uh, 
She had an explanation for it at the town hall, and we talked to a couple uh, undecideds and some Haley supporters too afterward that they said, well, we didn't like that remark. You know, we did we did not like that. But her explanation was sufficient for them, uh, sufficient enough. I think enough people are are connected to the game where they they know that. Look, you're not you know if it's if if it's sports, right? You're you're not gonna you're not gonna go to the uh, you're not gonna go like if you're a player that you were traded to another team. You're not gonna go to your new team and be like, oh, the other team was better. You know, you're just not gonna do that. You know, so I understand why she was playing up. Uh, what she was saying in New Hampshire. That's that's kind of, you know, part of the deal. But it, beyond that, I, I, when I, we got the chance to uh, interview uh, Nikki Haley one-on-one, and I asked her, you know, what, what does success look like in Iowa? And she did not talk about winning. She, she, she did not talk about winning. Of course, I'm sure she would love to win, and, and that would be a, a big surprise uh, for a number of reasons. But she just said, strong. We got to be strong. You know, if if it's a strong second or if it's a basically a neck and neck second, I think that's enough for her. And, you know, we talk about um, what can what can that do down the road? Really, what we're talking about is, does she have enough momentum to get more funding? Or do any of these candidates have enough momentum to get more funding and keep going? You know, that, that yeah. that's basically what we're talking about when we're talking about strong, right? And so if, if there is a second place or a close second place, I, I don't think I get the sense anyway, because there's been chatter. Will Ron DeSantis drop out? Will, you know, so-and-so drop out? If DeSantis or Haley basically finish in a tie for second, I I don't think either will drop out. I think they'll keep it going. I, I, I do think they'll keep it going. They'll keep it rolling. Um because New Hampshire is another one where either I, I think either one of those candidates could could win New Hampshire, and yeah. and then you know the campaign just keeps rolling from there. So it, it'll be it'll be very interesting. I, I mean, it, it's it just from a, again a political nerd sense, it is interesting. Now I do want to go back to Trump for one second. Yeah, you know, you talked about how he's in the polls. First of all, has Donald Trump ever downplayed himself? No, <laughs> never, never would. So, no, I mean, he could, he could be running last at a race and say he's winning, you know, it's not, yeah. it's, that's not surprising. But what was surprising is at a lot of his events, he is beating a different drum. And that drum is, I want you to go out and vote. I want you to get out there because we heard in 2020, about the the rigging and the cheating and 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 that that tune he was playing at a lot of rallies. No, mm-hmm. no, no, he does not seem to be wanting to take chances this time around. And he is strongly, strongly, strongly encouraging the people at the rallies to go vote and get other people to vote. It, it in 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 the Trump era, it sounds like a very uh, almost like a throwback term uh, that yeah. that we've heard, you know, from from years past from other candidates where they encourage people to get out and vote. Like that that was the that was the tune that Trump was singing at the rallies and and I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. And I think you can I think you can tell and, and maybe he doesn't feel like she's a big threat in Iowa, but you can tell that I think he she he feels that Nikki Haley is a, a bigger threat than Ron DeSantis with the levels of attacks uh, that that his campaign has been has been levying against her. And uh, in, in a truth social post that came out this week, Trump reposted an article by a, a right wing blogger uh, saying that Nikki Haley was ineligible for the to 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 run for president because her parents 
didn't become citizens until after she was born. Now, she was born in South Carolina, has been a United States citizen her whole life. So just about everyone is is discounting that. But it, it echoes back to some of the uh, the birther statements that Trump made about Barack Obama and, and Senator Ted Cruz when, when he was running for president, um, both before he ran for president in 2016 and during the 2016 presidential campaign. So uh, you can tell by the way some of the some of the, the, the angles that these uh, candidates take, who they view as their as their real threats in, in this particular race. And you look at Ron DeSantis, who, who when he first announced announced with uh, a lot of there was a lot of excitement around his candidacy he led in the polls for the first month or two or at least even before he announced in national polling he was leading trump by a significant margin and and that went away once the indictments started being handed down near the beginning of the year back in back in january or so so ron DeSantis is here nikki haley is getting a lot of the press a lot of the attention donald trump of course sucks a lot of the oxygen out in the room out of the room. What did you hear from people in terms of supporting Ron DeSantis while you were on the ground? Does does he have a groundswell of support? I think for the people who do support him, they do actually really like his policies. Uh, I, I think they, what I heard a lot was he has a plan. He has a plan for everything. And they look at, you know, how he was governing Florida and uh, they, in, they liked his stance on COVID uh, when he uh, was one of the first... I, I will say I was living in Arizona when COVID was going on, and and uh, I I don't know if Arizona beat Florida to it, but Florida and Arizona were pretty similar in how they tried to open uh, up their states uh, when a lot of other states were were not doing that. So they they did. Um, that's a shout out to Arizona. Okay, I'm yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, I uh, caught that. Yeah, yeah, I I, but they they did really enjoy how he handled COVID. I I think they I I. I think they like his tough talk on the on the border. Um, you know, those are those are policies that I, I think they're they are in, enjoying. And I also I also do think that for a lot of the DeSantis supporters I talked to um, n- now, the Haley campaign and Nikki Haley during a lot of her events talks about the chaos that comes with Donald Trump. She has been, I think, more than any other candidate earlier than any other candidate. She has talked about chaos that comes with Trump. We need to move on from the chaos. You don't, her line is you don't fight Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. And a lot of her support that's resonating with a lot of supporters. Recently, you have heard DeSantis talking more about that. He's kind of walking a fine line about the indictments where he says, um, well, you know, the uh, the 14th Amendment is not being applied correctly in, in some of these cases, uh, Colorado, Maine, etc. And then he says, but, but this is the yeah. stuff he's going to be wrapped up in. You know, he's just going to be wrapped up in this and and, mm-hmm. and we can't have that. So when I'm president, I can actually come in and, and really figure this stuff out. He, he talks about that more now. Um, mm-hmm. And some of his supporters wish he was going after Trump earlier. You know, he, he walked a fine line for a long time where he didn't want to offend the base and I think he saw some plummeting numbers. I, I don't think that really resonated with a lot of people. Um, so now I think they are, you know, he's, one of the other things that DeSantis is hitting Trump on is what he calls broken promises. He, you know, Trump, he says, Trump, let's face it, never took care of the border. He said he was going to build a wall, didn't build a wall, said he was going to do an executive order, didn't do an executive order. And he's coming out stronger. And I think his supporters, uh, they do really, they, they are 
they, they like that he's being stronger on that topic, but almost a little bit of regret in they wish he did it right from the get-go. And that could be a reason why he's not surging as much as, as say, Nikki Haley is because Haley has been on the attack for, for I'd say, quite some time longer than DeSantis has. Ramaswamy can continuing to hit at, at Nikki Haley and offer himself as the younger Trump alternative. Ramaswamy, interesting case, um, will not back down and, and doesn't want to back down and, and truly embraces, a, a, you know, he he's a Trump 2.0. Uh, I, you know, we, we got a chance to talk to him for a little bit, too. And I said, you know, in the past, you've said Donald Trump is the best president of your lifetime. And he said he quickly said, I stand by that. And I said, OK. But then why run against him? You know, what's what's then why? And his main thing is, again, the youth. You know, he said, I I am the the youth America first agenda. The younger America first agenda uh, is standing right here. Uh, and we can take what Donald Trump started and, and bring it across the finish line. Uh, so he's not trying to be the Trump alternative. He's trying to be Trump 2.0. And, and truth be told, that is resonating with a lot of Trump supporters. Not that they're going to vote for him over Trump. They, some have told me, well, we hope he winds up in the cabinet. Uh, he'd be a decent vice president pick. Or they're saying, you know, in 2028, Trump's not going to be around anymore. But this guy might. And I like mm -hmm. his ideas. So again, he might be playing a longer game also. It, it, it's just, you know, the finish... But again, I'll go back to the eternal optimism of every candidate. He told me, he's like, I love the media narrative that I'm in fourth. My supporters aren't being polled. They're not being polled, and we're going to shock people. We're going to shock the world. And he was adamant about that. I don't, we'll see what happens on, on Monday. I, yeah. I don't know, you know, the 15th. I don't know that. But, you know, he says my supporters aren't being polled, and, and he'll go to his events and he'll ask, how many of you have been polled by the mainstream media? And, and you know, people don't really raise their hands. I think there's something to that. I, I do. I, you know, you, you got to look at the sci mm -hmm. scientific method behind all of these polls. So we'll see. You know, I, I think, again, he has support from Trump supporters, but they're not going to vote for him over Trump. So we'll see how many people, uh, you know, how many people he could peel away and, and what success yeah. looks like to him. I do have one more thing for you, and this may actually be the most important question of the podcast. Um, how is the food? In Iowa, did you, did you eat well while you were there? <laughs> I did. Yeah, we did eat well. I uh, well, it, I had some corn fritters that I absolutely loved, uh, and apparently I missed out. Somebody said to me after the fact, uh, I guess uh, a big thing is either like a brisket or or some sort of that type of sandwich, which is right up my alley. Yeah. And apparently, I I I missed it, so I oh, I, I regret that. I know. I know. But uh, we ate well. We went. I I don't know. I loved it. I actually I thought Des Moines was really great. Uh, um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bash their skyline. It wasn't like a very big <laughs> skyline, but I I did yeah. like Des Moines. But what I really liked is their state house. Their state mm -hmm. house is like this shining building over overseeing Des Moines. It's just really cool if you're if you're into capitals around the country. And I've been to a few of them. Some mm -hmm. of them are very ugly, and Iowa yeah. is not ugly at all. It's actually yeah. very very beautiful building.
Yeah, you don't go to Des Moines for the skyline. You you, you know you go to see the, the <laughs> wide open plains and and to have you know everything's made of fried corn in, in that's, Iowa. So that's, that's right. That's kind of why like I was a state fair. Even though I, I I wasn't there for the Iowa State Fair, but the food is like a state fair every day, all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. mean, you you have you know you're, you're eating you know uh, the waffle cake you know three three meals a day when 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 you're in Iowa from what I hear. Yeah, so the corn, the corn fed folk out there. That's the right, corn fed folk. Yeah. Well, make sure you check out all of Matt's stories on his uh, trip to Iowa, and Matt will be covering uh, the caucus. Uh, give us a preview on Monday, and then a recap on Tuesday of next week to let us know uh, what all happened. If you go to cbnnews.com, uh, Matt's stories uh, will be able to be found there. Um, some conversation about. Uh, Trump and the evangelical vote there, uh, as well as just a general overview of what's happening on the ground uh, in Iowa. Matt, thank you so much for coming back on the DC Debrief. It's always a pleasure. John, thank you so much. All right, and now it's time for the closer. And as Iowans go to the polls on Monday, they will be doing so wearing a lot of layers, as voters will likely be faced with the coldest day for caucusing on record. The National Weather Service says there has never been a colder Iowa caucus night than what is in store for them on January 15th. A Des Moines-based meteorologist said that they may not warm above zero degrees on Monday, that he would not be surprised if they don't get above minus 20 degrees for wind chills beginning on Sunday. Uh, the previous coldest Iowa caucus voting day uh, was in 2004 when the high temperature was 16 degrees. Uh, it's going to be an absolutely frigid middle of the country uh, during the course of the weekend and into next week, uh, really in, in the Northeast as well. Many parts of the country are going to be dealing with a polar vortex, uh, severe drop in 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 temperatures. So uh, for folks who are concerned in Iowa about how this could affect their candidates, it, it could have an impact. It's all reporting on Thursday night, Friday morning, that the Trump camp is concerned that this could winnow his numbers down and that they're going to be working hard to try and get people out to vote. Uh, if there is a, if, if snow is an issue, uh, to, to find a way to get people to their caucuses, um, uh, to get to get them out and to and to support President Trump, uh, a Suffolk University poll out on Thursday found Trump maintained a 32 point lead over Haley, 54 to 22, with DeSantis at 13 percent. But could Trump voters, if they don't want to brave the weather, if they think or assume that he has a big enough lead? Can they say, well, Trump's up by 32. I don't I don't need to get out there. If enough of them stay home, could that result in Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Vivek Ramaswamy, for that matter? Jump? Could they jump ahead of the president or at least make it a much closer race than the 32-point lead would indicate? Or could Haley and DeSantis voters think their candidate has no shot, that they're losing by 32 points and just decide to stay home saying it's not worth it? Or will everyone show up? Because we know Iowans are made of a different stock uh, than than other folks. They're used to, to, to uh, nasty weather uh, in that part of the state, salt of the earth people for sure. And so they might all just decide, we've dealt with cold before, let's go caucus. But certainly there are some conversations that are being had uh, serious weather this week, and Iowa canceled a number of different political events. Uh, there was a an event that uh, Donald Trump was going to do with Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Mike Huckabee, 
and that was canceled. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy had his car in a ditch, I think, as he was trying to get from from one place to the other due to the snow and and the bad weather. So it does have an impact. And we have seen other elections in the past be impacted by foul weather. So something to keep an eye on on Monday as Iowans take to the polls. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else it is that you get your podcasts. Thanks everyone for tuning in. And we'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief.